<clears throat> see if do you want to say this is something absolutely riveting? Yes, uh, had we but world enough and time, <laughs> this coyness lady were no crime. Oh, there we go. That looks good. Sorry, it should have been a romantic, shouldn't it? But uh, there you go. quite a big slightly Wordsworthian question about your relationship with with nature as a, as a whole because I know you grew, you grew up in Bristol and then in London in quite urban yeah areas. yeah absolutely what was your relationship I mean, as, a, as a child this is the Wordsworthian bit yeah. what was your relationship yeah early awareness of the shades of the prison house I would uh, I would say rather than of the, the, that of nature uh, I think the prison house came first in my case because uh, I was brought up an urban but fascinated uh, by wildlife which I mostly got from television uh, from David Attenborough from Peter Scott and so forth and from from books Gerald Darrell obviously and in particular from uh, the uh, Natural History Museum in South Kensington I was I could get the 49 bus from Streatham Common uh, to South Kensington uh, and uh, and I used to do that when I was about 10 and I could just go by myself and I would spend uh, uh, the day in the uh, in, in the museum what would you see what were the things the uh, uh, the the dinosaurs, the images of the dinosaurs, uh, the bones, the birds in particular, but the, the stuffed mammals, the mammal hall. I remember taking my youngest son, Eddie, who has a Down syndrome and loves whales uh, from seeing them on, on film, taking him to the mammal hall, which is unchanged from when I was there, at least in my memory. And we went in, I didn't tell him what we were going to see. We walked into the mammal hall. It was crowded Christmas holidays, everybody rushing off to see the dinosaurs. And no, no, we're going this way. This, and there is the life-size model of the blue whale. And it was just the most glorious moment because, I mean, he didn't say anything. He didn't need to. He just looked at this thing and was said, then she said, "Blue whale," and I said, "Yeah, blue whale." It's the one thing you don't expect. Yeah, absolutely. No, there you go in somebody's house, and there's an entire blue whale. No, it was a, it was a spectacular uh, moment, and uh, it was reliving my own past uh, through him. That moment of just the absolute uh, glory and wonderment of all these creatures, but actually learning to do it for myself as. Uh, out in real nature was that was something that came much later in my life because that's a, it's, it's a different sort of Wordsworthian in question I guess which is there's a moment where you become conscious of nature as a as something you want to go into as something you want to experience mm. and that's something that perhaps yeah. gives you some kind of sustenance um, some sort of I don't know if it's spiritual or imaginative but was there a moment where you started then Seeking it, seeking it. Uh, it was uh, kind of a slow process uh, through uh, Cornish holidays uh, and uh, loving all, all, all of that. The, you know, the, the, the time of being a hippie, listening to the incredible string band, and the notion that being out with out, out in nature was somehow good. So you went, did it? Well, it must be good. And of course, I, I, I loved it more and more. But also with that background of uh, um, 
my childhood love for nature, uh, of, of, which was more specific, wanting to know what the animals were, what was doing stuff, because, you know, the, the kind of the hippie idea was, you know, don't want to identify stuff, that's uncool, that spoils it. But I never thought that, I wanted to know more. And slowly, I had this acute nostalgia for a kind of a past, a childhood I'd never known. Uh, for that, perhaps, words worthy in childhood or when I was at one with nature. But always felt I wanted to, all these creatures I'd seen as, uh, as skins in museums, in books, and on screen, I wanted to do it for myself. And eventually I um, did do, when I was turning 30, that, that, that late, I was living in Hong Kong by then. And uh, uh, we were, I was there with a, a girlfriend at the time on... Uh, in Sri Lanka and uh, we missed our plane and because I managed to wangle a freebie we couldn't get another one for uh, uh, another week <laughs> now being stranded on a beautiful island for an extra week with a girl called Cindy was not the biggest hardship in the world but uh, I didn't know quite what we should do and she said, well, let's go out to the nature reserves. And I really wanted to do that. But I was terrified of doing it in case it should be a disappointing experience. But there was no alternative. <laughs> so we went and we did that. And it was and it was suddenly I was there on the front line of wildlife, seeing the stuff, seeing elephants, seeing the fantastic birds. And it was all there in, in, in front of me. And so suddenly my life was changed. You know, and and I, 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 I married Cindy, of course. Okay. <laughs> what happens when you're when you're there There's, is there something that's, that's happening inside you is there something that is there a way that, that all of this stuff out there is, is, is touching you yes yes there is uh, 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 um, uh, and I think it's uh, the sense of participation uh, 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 the point of uh, going beyond being a spectator and becoming a participant. And, I th and that is a great sense of privilege. I think I've learned it a lot in this country by learning birdsong, by understanding birdsong. So when in most places, when I hear a bird uh, make any kind of noise, I'll have a rough idea what's going on, what bird is making the noise, or why it's doing it, uh, and, and so forth, which gives me that kind of privileged access. It's like uh, travelling uh, club, club class, as it were. You know, you are, you are, you, you've got something that uh, other people haven't. And that is that sense of joining in, the sense of it's, uh, you're not, it's not being done for your benefit, but you have the privilege of being a participant. And that uh, feeling has doubled and quadrupled when I spent time in Africa. And I spent a lot of time in Africa walking. And when you're walking on the savannas of Africa, just as our ancestors used to do, um, you have a very clear 
certainty that uh, you are not something that's imposed on nature. You are part of nature. You are a participant to the extent of being protein. And when you walk closely with lions, as I did uh, just a few weeks ago, we walked close to, to them. The idea was to get close enough to be interesting, but not too close to be dangerous. And we got close enough for it to be very interesting because the lions were a little bit agitated and they got up and started growling at us. And if you're walking, you're on foot, and you can hear the sound of a lion growling and you can see the shadowy shape of a lion getting up suddenly from a lying down position, sitting up like a cat on a mat, uh, looking in your direction. Then you don't have any feelings of uh, humans as a separate part of creation. We're not angels come down from Earth. So far as that lion is concerned, we're a bloody nuisance that's disturbing its sleep. We might be dangerous, uh, but if the push comes to shove, we're ultimately protein. Is that something that we find harder and harder as as our lives become more technological? Are we spending more and more time, uh, apparently, you know, um, sedentary inside, in front of all manner of different kinds of screens? Is that is that a sense that that perhaps while it's always been illusory, is particularly Trouble, troubling now that, that we... I think yeah I think it be, the, the more we lose it the more we need it and that's been the history of um, our relationship with nature and it began with the romantics the romantics were the first people to feel that to nature needed glorifying and needed celebrating and needed to point out that it was important because it was no longer something we could take for granted and the reason they were able to do so was the fact that they were able to get there because they could get there by trains and because there were now proper roads. Wordsworth was able to get to the Lake District because it was proper transport. So the fact that he was able to celebrate the Lake District was the beginning of the destruction of the Lake District as, a, as an intact ecosystem. But this is so very, very, very interesting in, 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 in both things you just said in as much as there seems to be a a tension between wanting to go out into nature to find a certain kind of peace on the one hand bringing the means to erode it but also the, the peace that we find is somehow unsettling that nature can disturb it is that part of perhaps a kind of romanticized view we have of we, I mean the reason we have this notion of nature is peaceful and that is uh, a privileged viewpoint on account of the fact that we've killed the large carnivores. If we look a bit more closely, we'll find that it's not peaceful for everybody. You may be sitting there in a charming, peaceful, it's a summer evening, there's a nice stretch of uh, water, a nice lake in front of you, and there's swallows zimming, uh, skimming over the lake, and every time they jink, you think, oh, that's great, that's a swallow, how peaceful. Not for the uh, midge that they've just caught, because that's now dead because it's a life and death struggle going on out there. Darwin wrote that his garden at Down House was a battlefield. And so it is. That's not to say that nature can't be peaceful, but it's not just peaceful on account of the fact that nature is everything. So you can't compartmentalise it. Again, out in Africa, I've had glorious peaceful times, but the fact that they are glorious is the fact that there is a context of uh, genuine uh, uh, danger there. It's... 
you know, it's, I'm in a remote and a, 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 but a, but a, it's a mostly controlled circumstances. You know, you feel very much that you are part of the continuity. The mosquitoes are getting you at one end, and you can hear the lions at dusk calling at the other end, and yet you can still sit there and feel absolutely at peace with the world, not because it is uh, entirely peaceful in itself, but because you feel content. You, you accept what it is. You accept that it is life is full of difficult and dangerous things as well as beautiful and marvellous things. And that's what gives us that, that those moments of reverie, respite, where the imagine you, 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 you need something to give it that kind of... I, it certainly helps. It certainly helped in the, in, the, uh, in, in, in the larger view, the fact that I have spent some time in, uh, uh, in more dangerous places than my back garden. <laughs> But uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, being in my back gardens, I was just the other day uh, having lunch with, uh, uh, again, with my uh, uh, younger boy, Eddie, and uh, lunch on the marsh. He said, OK, we went out there and it's, it's November. So we wrapped up warm, got the waterproofs on. We were having lunch in the marsh and we had a kingfisher fizz uh, uh, straight down in front of us. And then a bird came and... Uh, uh, we both managed to get the binoculars on it and it was a peregrine falcon, you know, the fastest bird in the world and perhaps one of the most fearsome killing machines and one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. The f flight, the movement of a peregrine falcon is a as riveting a thing as, uh, as exists in nature. What is the correct terminology? Is bird watching, uh, birding? Is that? I, I would not. I would naturally say birding, birding. Uh, but I would use that as a, um, a, a totally inclusive thing. If you uh, if you uh, look out of the window and you see a bird, and uh, uh, you, you know you, your eyes follow it, you're a you're a birder. You're a bird watcher. You're you're enjoying birds. Well, I think partly because we're we're talking about uh, this 2020 Keith Shelley Prize, which is about songbirds and it it, it reminded me that the, the, the birding is is not just a a, a visual uh, exercise but 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 a, an yeah. overall a, a, a very much well, I, it, I mean being out in nature involves uh, all your senses uh, every every single one of them you know the texture of the ground uh, beneath your feet to pick up a smell um here's a fascinating hint for you if you find a turd under a bridge and have a sniff of it. If it smells a little bit like Palmer violets, you found an otter spring. <laughs> so there you go. That's a very useful the thing. Smell. Yeah. Why primacy of sight? We're primarily sighted organism, but we're, but we're not much good without our ears. But we tend to degrade that as uh, uh, as an experience. You have bird watching. Have you? Uh, you know, how many birds have you seen? Uh, you know, and some some birders won't count a bird if they've only. Uh, got it with their ears. But on the other hand, if you are doing a ornithological survey for the uh, for the British Trust for Ornithology uh, anywhere, but particularly in in woodland, just about 
rule, three quarters of your records will be on call, really? song and call. That's how you mostly identify most birds, particularly in the breeze. You pick them, pick up the song, and the and the and the eyes follow. And if you're in the canopy, sometimes you never see them. I mean, you hear a nightingale. There's not a lot of point in looking for it because it's right in the middle of the thickest bush uh, uh, you, you you can get and if you do manage to see it it's not a great bird to see anyway so just stand still and listen to it I think that's mm. part of I always thought that's part of Keats's attraction to it that maybe expressing his own sort of anxieties about his height his mm. his uh, lack of personal appeal, yeah. but at the same time being able to produce this amazing. Yes, absolutely. That absolutely. When did it? When when did when did the sort of serious engagement with 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 birding be, begin for for you? And it was was there a particular impulse? In terms of enjoying birds, I came back from Sri Lanka, and first thing I did was to uh, was to get myself a bird book, uh, and uh, and I mean I had plenty of bird books in England, but I was living abroad at the time. So I got my, a local bird book and 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 just started. Once you started looking, I had the habit of looking, and I, so I was always looking. And then when I had got through working with very very good birders, uh, I got the habit of listening, as well. Then um, it became all uh, uh, all surrounding. I was it was inescapable. Was this in Hong, in Hong Kong? It, it, no, that was subsequently. Okay. I did, a, I did, I tri- went my first trip to Africa and worked with uh, a great guy called uh, Bob Schoenstead, uh, a Swedish baron, into, uh, but uh, genius on birdsong. And then I did a, a book on um, A Year in the Life of Mincemere Bird Reserve in Suffolk. And I worked with uh, Jeremy Sorensen, um, who wasn't a Swedish baron, in fact, <laughs> despite, despite the <laughs> excellence of the name. Working with them, I, I guess they were always listening, always telling me. I, my ears were tuned in, and now I am always listening, no matter where I am or what I'm doing. I, if I, a bird calls, I will, uh, I, I, I will pick it up at some level. What do you need to be a good bird? And by that, I both mean in terms of the skills, but also what, in terms of the environment, the atmosphere, what, what if you were advising someone out there listening mm. to this, how, how do you go about developing the skills probably the the most important thing is to learn the art of sitting still (laughs) Uh, I mean it's great having a walk and going to a place walking around a lake when there's nice birds with your binoculars with a telescope with somebody who knows whatever it all comes back to to the prime experience of sitting still where you may not see the most spectacular thing but you might you don't know but you can just still sit still and let stuff come to you and uh, that's not the only or the uh, experience at, at all but it gives that gives you the basis almost li- literally the uh, the grounding so you you sit, sit still and you're not thinking about stuff uh, you're not allowed to get your phone out uh, and uh, and, uh, and and check the screen you just sit there even for you can do it 5 minutes 5 minutes on your on your way home through the park, that, that that kind of thing. Do it, do it to do it to you. It'll be a bit late actually. We'll probably just miss it tomorrow morning then. Just you know, just just sit down and just sit and in a nice place and look and listen and uh, yeah, become part of it. Become part of it rather than stop. Watch, you're not watching it or walking through it. Just for a moment, you're a participant. That would feel to be at odds with a kind of uh, a, a cultural moment where we are or human beings seem to be assailed by distraction by mm. sort of hyperactivity yeah. Yeah. by the, 
does it feel sort of in at this particular moment both out of time but maybe offering a refuge yes i think it does i think it does i think uh, um i don't think the point of nature is as a counterblast to 21st century life sure. but i think 21st century life we are becoming increasingly nature deprived and we're in one of the most nature deprived countries of the world we think we're a nature uh, a nation of nature lovers because of our tradition of great wildlife writing, wildlife uh, uh, poetry and so forth. While we've been priding ourselves on uh, on this glorious heritage, we've been destroying our natural resources better than anybody else in Europe. We've lost 40 million birds uh, since 1970. That That is to say the population of birds in the United Kingdom is 40 million lower than it was in 1970. We need to... Um, not just for the bird's sake, but for our own sake. We, 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 we are impelled to go out and find that because we don't, we're not complete on our own. We need to be outside and listening and joining up and feeling that we're, we're not alone in, in, in the universe. It's not just about us. And we are richer, more comfortable, and we are more sane when we feel ourselves in the context of the natural world. We grew up as part of it. Now we're trying to cut ourselves off from it. We're creating a, uh, a nostalgia for that. It's, this is a, a little excerpt from, yeah. from one of your yeah. blogs, which I think is describing the act of, yeah, yeah, uh, I, of looking. It's about focusing your eyes and bins a good half a mile away and more, trying to interpret small clues in a meaningful way. The secret is to throw your soul out to sea while remaining dry shod. And there, passing in front of the wind turbines, low to the sea and moving with some purpose, two gannets, glowing far whiter than anything else ever could, wild birds of the wild open ocean. And for a moment, I was as wild as they were. Other than just a, a, a wonderful description of paying close attention mm. but is some was what you were talking about earlier about the idea that it's not just um which i know you, you've written about well in your in, in your other career as a sports writer but of, of, of sitting passively watching but of the act of, of, of a kind of sensual engagement through listening and yeah something is transferred you you go out into into this wildness yeah and i think it's something we i mean i've quite often see when i'm uh, there's a place uh, in cornwall where i sit with Eddie and we look out to sea and we, we, we look for gannets and whatever else is passing and uh, I often think I want, to, I want to point to these look that's a gannet that's a gannet out there I mean sometimes I do if they stop and talk but you know mostly they're kind of busy and caught up with, with, with themselves and they've got to get from one place to another and you know sit there, I think part of them would be really would be would feel really happy if they could see a gannet but uh, it would improve the day but but, is, uh, is there something again forbidding about the idea of Wildness. I mean, it's, a, it's one of Keats's favourite words, and he uses it in, in La Belle Dame mm. Sans to sort of describe this unknowable, slightly terrifying otherness of, of again, in nature that it, it seems to hark back to that idea of something that we, we slightly shrink from or a side of ourselves we don't want to acknowledge. Yeah, I think, I, I think uh, it's, there is a, a contradiction absolutely at heart in 
everything we in, in our relationship with nature at every level. At one level, we think it's coming to get us. At the other level, it's completely benign and peaceful. At one level, we've got to absolutely tame it. Uh, at the other level, um, it's endlessly bountiful. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by the Keats Shelley House in Rome and the Keats Shelley Memorial Association. Part two of our interview with Simon Barnes will be posted on our website. You can find out more about the Keats Shelley House, our history, our library and collections, our events programme, and also how to visit us by going to keatsshelleyhouse.org. If you'd like to support us either by becoming a friend or offering a donation, please visit keatsshelley.org where you can also find details of 2020's Keith Shelley Prize and Young Romantics Prize. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keith Shelley. Our theme music is Androids Always Escape by Chris Zabriskie. Please visit chriszabriskie.com.